Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Assistant Professor of Geology, Dr. Cassie Fenton. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Good. So geology. (laughs) I mean, a lot of times people think rocks when you think geology, but it's so much more than that. They do. Little little rundown. They do. They think um, rocks. It's either rocks or it's oil, gas, and mining, which there's not like anything wrong with that, right? All the resources we use on Earth, if we're not growing stuff, we're using resources directly from Earth. So I, I try very hard to be very fair about like talking about all the resources that Earth has. Um, my perspective on geology, how I got into it, is it's it's more than just oil, gas, and mining and rocks. It's oceanography. It's climate change science. It's watershed science. It's understanding where our water comes from and precipitation, like rain and snow and in what quantities and how that varies over time. It's natural disasters, right? Like all these landslides up in Glenwood Springs this year. It's understanding why they tend to happen there more often than not and where volcanic hazards happen, natural disasters happen, um, understanding where earthquakes are and understanding like you can learn about them and they seem a lot less scary the more we know about them. So it's basically the world around us. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Breaking it down today on See Me Now's podcast. (laughs) So you have a lot of experience, not only here in the United States when it comes to geosciences, but I know you also have experiences from abroad. Could you maybe talk to us about where you've studied abroad and what are the differences that you um, came to know between geology and geosciences abroad and here in the United States? Um, Okay, well, there's two different aspects to this. I have one of the great things about geology when you get up in the research level is that because it is the earth around us, we get to travel a lot. And I've gotten to see some really cool places. When I was a graduate student here in the United States, um, I got to do field work in Argentina, and I got to do field work in Chile, if I remember. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, get a postdoc research position, position in Germany, so just outside of Berlin, not long after I got my PhD. And I actually had the opportunity to live abroad. I got to live in Germany. And from there, I got to do field work in places like Argentina again, Chile again, and I got to do field work in Norway. So I got kind of an international experience, not just from international rocks, um, but I also got to live in an environment and a culture that was so completely different than what I was used to. Um, so I, I moved to Germany because I had this opportunity. I like to tell students like when opportunities come to you, they might seem kind of scary, but within reason, you should always just say, yes, I want to do it. Like, yeah, I'll check it out. Because if it doesn't work out, you can always just say, all right, that didn't work out and I'm coming home. Um, so I moved to Germany without understanding a word of German, except maybe ja and nine. And I threw myself into having to navigate life, not just my research and my work, but um, I had to do things like set up a bank account and go to the doctor and learn how to buy bread and order food in a restaurant in a language I didn't know at all. And so it gave me a really different and more open-minded perspective on what it's like to live in an environment in a culture where maybe you don't speak, like here in the States, maybe you don't speak English as your first language and you still get through life and you still persevere and you're still like getting things done. It's just a little bit more challenging sometimes, but you often find people who are willing to help you or who have had a similar experience and know what it's like getting thrown kind of 
you know, headfirst into a new language and in the everyday world of doctors and banks and restaurant ordering. <laughs> I love that it, it sounds like you've used your career to, to travel the world. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, people, students graduate, they, they earn their degree and then they think, okay, I'm going to just get, get a job, first job I see. But really like it, it sounds cliche, but like the world is their oyster, right? There's geology and, and career opportunities everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And depending on what path you want to take, um, in geology, we do have oil and gas and mining, and there's there's places where you can go that are definitely out of state and definitely out of country, going into the more private industry sector. Um, if you go into research, there's all kinds of research projects in all the different fields. Like if you're into studying glaciers, you can go to Antarctica, right? If you're that, that involves climate change too. If you're into uh, studying volcanoes, you can be in South America, or you can be up in Washington and Oregon. We've got volcanoes right here in almost our backyard. Um, there's all kinds of amazing stuff up in Alaska. So th- traveling the world means that you can get outside of our country, which is awesome. But there's even like lots of really cool stuff just within our contiguous and non-contiguous United States. And I, I think it's really important to encourage students to, to travel if they're interested, right? Not everybody is. But um, definitely do it when you're younger and have energy and time. And we should know you actually, if you're a, a geologist or aspiring geologist, I mean, you don't have to travel very far because here in Grand Junction, this is uh, like Disneyland for geologists. Isn't that right? That um, again, another awesome way of putting that. <laughs> yeah, I tell my students all the time, like I, I went to grad school in Salt Lake City, University of Utah, and I'm from upstate New York, and I had hoped that I would find a job somewhere in the Southwest. I I did my PhD research basically on the Colorado Plateau in Arizona and in Utah a little bit, and I kept thinking, oh my God, if I could only, if there was a, a college in Moab, I would love to teach at a college in Moab. And the rocks around here are just like outstanding, world class Disneyland, awesome, fun rocks. And... And that even if you're from Junction, these rocks, you might think, oh, they're just in my backyard. I've grown up with the book cliffs in my backyard my whole life. The, the book cliffs are like phenomenal to geologists for fossil reasons, for oil and gas reasons, for all kinds of um, just understanding paleoclimate reasons. And people come from all over the world to study these rocks. I know of field camps. That's a common thing in geology. They Summer field camps. Um, professors bring like juniors and seniors to different locations around the world to study different projects. And there are people from Europe who come here to the Moab area, to the Grand Junction area to study the rocks we have just 10 minutes down the road from us. And that's why as a geologist here in our geosciences program, I'm like super psyched that I get the opportunity to take our students out there like just about every week. We have um, even students who are in the 100 level classes who haven't declared majors yet, we get them out on the rocks for their essential learning courses and give them a better feel for what's going on. It's not just red rocks. There's cool stuff. There's dinosaur fossils in there. There's old Saharan sand dune like environments stored in there. There's volcanoes around here. And that's all within 10 to 30 minutes of our backyard here. Well, I was just on a hike yesterday. <laughs> going through the National Monument. And and yeah, you, you are walking and I don't know anything about geology, but I have somewhat of an idea of kind of, you know, there's layers, something's happening. It's like a, 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 a time, you know, I'm reading like a novel of like a time period in history just by looking at these, 
these rocks and the stones there. And can you give us a breakdown of those of us who do live here in Grand Junction and we go to the monument all the time? What are we looking at and what are we seeing and what is what's the story there? A um, couple of really cool things. Over in the monument, we have black rocks and we have red rocks. That's really simplifying it. The black rocks, they indicate like all these crazy mountain building events that happen on really slow geologic timescales um, way back like more than a billion years ago. And we call them basement rocks. They're like the foundation of a house. They're the foundation of our continent. And then there's a kind of, we call it an unconformity. It's a gap in time. So it's, it's actually like a space. It's like a line, like thin as a piece of paper. And on top of that, we have like layer cake rocks, right? We've got the Wingate Formation, the Chinle Formation. We have all these stacks of different layers of red rock. And the red rock, you can almost think of it as like each layer, like each formation, you could like pull out a drawer and in that drawer would be a history of what was going on at the time that that rock was deposited. Like, like these really thick Wingate cliffs they were formed during a time when the environment here in Grand Junction and much of Colorado, it was like the Saharan Desert. We had really enormous sand dunes and the wind was blowing them across the state and for a really, really long time and, and stacking them up on one another to the point where they, they kind of got glued together and locked in that story, right? And then over by Lunch Loops in that area, even in the monument, you have um, the Morris information. I like to tell my students, it reminds me of looking at marbled bacon. You see lots of reds and grays and whites. And they even joke about calling it like um, Bacon Hill over in that area. Um, the marbled bacon Morris information, that contains some of like the most infamous fossils of dinosaurs that the world has ever seen. Like one of the most famous dinosaurs that's in the museum in Chicago actually was excavated from the Morris information over here in Fruta. So we've got all kinds of different stories and different histories and different climates that are preserved in those rocks. We go from like Sahara dry, bone dry desert to really vegetated, wet lakes and rivers and lots of life and lots of dinosaurs. And those are all preserved in those cool rocks that we're like hiking on and mountain biking on. So when we take the students out, we go on and on about all these cool stuff and about the time that I'm like, okay, I can see their eyes maybe fading, their, their brains are full of geology. I'm like, all right, well, maybe we should just take a moment to just be here on this trail or on this outlook or this overlook and, and just take a minute to just be in awe. Whether you're a geologist or not, you can just look out over this landscape and take a moment to be like, why is this landscape here? How did it form? Why did it form? And those are the kinds of questions that we go after when we're studying it as geologists. So we, we hope to kind of foster that curiosity in our students, whether they're geology majors or not. We, we don't want to get them to ask those like why questions, like why is it here? Why is it different? Why does it look different than mountains over near New York or the landscape down in Texas? Certainly anything up in Washington and Oregon, like why is it so different here? And why is it so beautiful? Well, and that's the question you asked, right? How, that's how you got into it. You were asking like, why is the land out here different when you're, you know, in your car driving? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in a really tiny town in the Adirondack Mountains and the mountains there, they're kind of more like a dome around you. They, they're kind of all around you. And my folks are from New York City and we used to drive down to the city once a year to visit them, like my grandparents and aunts and uncles. And I remember even as a little kid thinking that I knew that the mountains that were closer to the city were mountains, but they looked different than the mountains I grew up in. And so even since I was like seven or eight, I, I just wanted to know why. Why do they look different? What forms it? What, 
what processes create these different landforms. And then I was fortunate enough to, um, A, have earth science offered as a course when I was in high school. I took that as a freshman. And I had a really amazing teacher, um, and she really inspired me to ask those why questions every second I could get. I, she never got sick of it. I imagine it's kind of like a parent who has a two-year-old. Eventually, they get sick of those why questions. Um, but she always fostered that curiosity and my desire to kind of pursue those answers. And I think that that really inspired me to, to carry that on as tradition, I guess, in, in my own teaching. And so it seems like that curiosity has taken you, like we were talking before, all over the world. You've explored in Germany and Chile, and I believe you said Norway, here in Grand Junction. And then I know you also spent quite a few um, years or quite a few months down in the Grand Canyon and that you were exploring volcanic fields down there. Can you mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about that research? Because I know when we were talking, I was like, volcanic fields, I did not think about that and the Grand Canyon. I think a lot about a different things with the Grand Canyon, but volcanic fields is not one of them. So could you talk about that research that you conducted down sure. there? Sure. Um, yeah, going back to like my my perspective of the Grand Canyon when I was in high school, I I always thought of it as just like those pictures, those postcards that you see where it just looks like nice horizontal layered rock and beautiful sunsets and those reds and purples and you know grays and blues and stuff. Um, so when I went to grad school, one of my advisor or my advisor, he said, "Hey, I've got a project down in the Grand Canyon." And before he could even finish, I just said, "Yes, right." It's the say Grand yes, Canyon. How do right? you not, how do you say no to that? Um, so it turned out, and I had no idea that this existed, there's a volcanic field, and the youngest eruption actually occurred about a thousand years ago, so technically it's still an active volcanic field. It's, youngest eruption is about as young as Sunset Crater down near Flagstaff. Um, and so he was interested in pursuing, finding out what the age of those lava flows were. There's faults in there too, so faults are like where earthquakes occur, and we were basically finding out how old those volcanic deposits or those volcanic flows were and using that to determine um, how often those faults could rupture and create large scale earthquakes. Like there are earthquakes that are big enough that they're felt in St. George in Utah. So for me, it was really exciting because it was like, oh, I get to study volcanoes and I get to study faults, but I also get to have this aspect of it that's applied to like everyday life. Like, is there an earthquake hazard in St. George? It's a growing city. Do we need to worry about earthquakes as, as a natural hazard there? Um, on top of that, kind of more esoterically, but super cool for me was um, these lava flows actually, some of them actually flowed into the canyon and created these big lava dams and water pooled up behind these lava dams, like quite big lakes. Um, and some scientists speculate that the dams lasted for a really long time, and our studies show that it was very likely that some of these lava dams failed very, very rapidly, very catastrophically, and sent these huge waves of floods downstream kind of off towards the Las Vegas area. Obviously, Las Vegas wasn't there at the time. This was a long time ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, but I got to learn about... I just feel like I, I got to learn about everything. I got to learn about rivers and fluid dynamics and how lava flows erupt and how old the lava flows were. And while I was down there, we were working with a team of scientists, one of which was from the USGS in Tucson. And he and I and, and this team, we were just really hitting it off and kicking around lots of great ideas. And he said, you know what? We're doing this controlled flood through the Grand Canyon this year. This is back in 1996. Um, so every now and then they have a, an experiment basically where um, they release water from Glen Canyon Dam 
at, for a specific amount of time at a specific volume so that they can kind of mimic floods that no longer occur through the Grand Canyon because of the dam. And they can see how um, sediment is shifted and how that affects ecosystems for fish and different types of life down there. I have to admit, I don't know super a lot about the ecosystems. Um, but again, they said, hey, do you want to go on a river trip? And before they even finished what it was about, I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so while I was down there, I got to use this opportunity to to be down in my field area and collecting samples and doing some mapping down there. But on the way down, I got to help with all kinds of data collection for um, what sandbars looked like before and after the flood. And we measured them. We were looking at debris flows. So uh, the, kind of like the landslides you saw in Glenwood Springs this year, they would enter the, the river. And if you have natural floods, the river moves that material out and cleans it out. So we were monitoring uh, the movement of those large boulders downstream and how far they moved and what force was needed to move them. So I feel like I just really lucked out in so many ways with that project. I I got to learn everything from like how sand moves and why and how that affects the ecosystems of fish all the way down to uh, looking at lava dams and catastrophic floods that moved through the Grand Canyon, stuff that I had never heard about in these postcards that I'd seen of the Grand Canyon. So it sounds like you learned a lot and got to have your hands in a lot of different facets with being down there. So not only with that experience, but maybe throughout kind of your professional career, what surprised you the most of what you've learned about geology and geosciences? Kind of a big question, but I just find it interesting, all of the facets of, you know, when you have geology or geosciences in your mind and what you think that would probably be. And it sounds like you've had so many more experiences that would fall outside of that realm to me. So what what has surprised you the most? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That's like a real zinger of a question. I have to think <laughs> about that one for a second. Um, what surprised me the most, I guess I would say, honestly, is that... Um, you get this idea when you're an undergraduate that people who have PhDs, that they know everything, right? And and I knew that I didn't know everything. And the more I advanced through my career, the more I felt like I knew quite a bit about a very small amount. So what surprised me the most was how interdisciplinary projects really need to be. And it was a it was a, like an eye-opening good surprise. Like I don't like working alone. I like working on teams. And I found that the more people that you have involved with different perspectives, right? Like the more diversity that you have on a project, that each person's expertise and each person's lens or perspective um, adds that much more to the project and makes it that much richer. And and that every time I work on a project with other people, I'm always learning new stuff. It's not that I know everything and I just lecture people and tell them how it is. I'm always like, so teach me, tell me what's new. Like, I, I don't know anything about ecosystems I want to learn. And I, I try to do that in my classes with students, too. I tell them, even in my 100 level classes, that we all come into these courses with different majors, with different experiences, and we're, we're trying to learn the material, but also like use that course to see the world through a different lens. And so hopefully I can share my lens with them, but I want them to also share their lens with me. Like I want to see the National Monument through the eyes of a mountain biker, someone who likes to hike in the outdoor rec program. Or I want to see um, like what the lighting in a canyon looks like to someone in the art program or in photography, right? So I, I guess, yeah, I didn't really think about it. It crystallized at just this moment. I think the biggest surprise was 
it, it's better when we all have a lot of different perspectives contributing to a big project. I love that. It's much more poetic than what I would have thought when you think <laughs> geology and rocks, but I feel like our discussion today is showing me just how poetic geosciences can be. I feel like that was such a, a beautiful note, and now I'm going to take it like a dark turn for a minute. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you mentioned that geology is about, you know, these natural hazards and disasters, um, and you also teach a climate change course. I do, yeah. And what I what I imagine, so, you know, it's probably a really hard class to get through for your students because they are the future, right? And they're listening to, to how our world is changing and how... Um, you know, it, 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 it's grim. It is. And I think you try to put hope into the classroom instead of just make it a, 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 a hard topic to talk about and a sad topic to talk about. I try. And it's, it's a really fine balance. I actually had a really good discussion just today, right before I came here with one of the students in my class. Um, it's, it's really a fine line to constantly be saying, like, I'm not dismissing how grim it can be. It can sound really dismal. And and when I'm talking about the science of climate change in this class, that, that I am, in the back of my mind, I'm keeping my emotional concerns about climate change kind of, like, separate just for the purposes of the class. And I can talk about climate change from this physics and chemistry and earth process perspective because it helps me moderate my emotions and I try to convey that to the students because I, I hear them being almost in a panic or sometimes really depressed or, or really afraid of climate change. And I understand why, right? I'm already, my, my disclaimer is like, no, and I'm not dismissing that. It is, it is worrying. I have a niece who's 14. This was part of our conversation today. Um, and I, I know that the world that she'll have when she's 50 or 60 is very different than the world that I'll have when I'm 50 or 60. And so that concerns me. And I'm not saying, oh, I don't care about climate change because I'll be dead long before it's an issue. It's an issue now. But if we, if we kind of set aside words that are often attached with it, like threat and crisis and apocalyptic and and words that are often used in the media and i don't mean that in a bad way we just we have different language in different fields um in science when we talk about climate change i come at it from the perspective of understanding rates of change and understanding systems on the earth like atmospheric wind patterns and weather patterns and climate zones and how they have shifted over time and and that there is a natural variability to the cycle. This is not saying climate change isn't happening. I want to be very clear about that. It's just, it gives me perspective to understand that, that the rates of change are what's important and the rate of change, the, the impact that we're having on the climate is something that actually we can get ahead of in many ways. Um, the, the rates are slow enough that we can actually react to it and adapt to it and mitigate things and try to prevent um, more climate change, more global warming. And if we break it down to talking about rates and numbers, it's a little more dull, but it's almost like, all right, let's just take it down a notch. Let's not be panicked. Let's think this through. And if we're not in a panic, our brains are more open to understanding solutions and finding solutions and being creative rather than feeling threatened and we're under this crisis and an apocalypse and pending tomorrow, we're more like, oh, well, what can we do right now to mitigate this or fix this? 
Do you have a, an example of a student who, or maybe students in your class where, you know, after one of these lectures, they just, they just got it. They just had this like aha moment. Um, yeah, I have. So one of my favorite stories, so indulge me. Uh, this was pre-COVID. It was, I think, the semester right before COVID hit. And I always, in my 100-level courses, I spend the last week talking about climate change. And, you know, it's it's a lot of material to cover at a 100-level just in a week. But I, I kind of want to at least touch on it and, and try and give them some hope and some you know, some positive outlook, not dismissing it, but just simply approaching it from a more relaxed stance. One solutions, maybe. And solutions, yes. And and coming up with, like, it's easy to sit around a table and talk about all the things that are wrong and, and, and read the news and talk about all the things that are horrible about climate change. But there are all kinds of scientists and people who are working on solutions, not just decreasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but also like preventing it, but also taking it out if we can and, and trying to find real solutions to these problems. And we don't hear about that in the news enough. So I try really hard to at least touch on that to say, I dare you go look up the news right now and, and Google like solutions to climate change. And there are things out there. We just don't hear about it because it's easier to just keep dwelling on all the things that are wrong. And I had one student, um, she was a front row student. She was in class all semester and and I, I didn't realize, I, I feel arrogant saying this, but I didn't realize how much I think I reached her because at the end of the semester, it was my very last lecture of the whole semester, it was my last lecture on climate change. And I kind of ended on this, like, so I still think there's hope. I still think that we we can do something about this. Let's not give up yet. And And she started clapping. Like, she was so moved or happy or, I don't know, she just seemed so, like, like I... I transferred some degree of positivity to her. And I think that was one of the highlights of my teaching career here. I've been here for five years and I've never had anyone clap like that enthusiastically at the end of a lecture. And then she seemed really embarrassed that she had clapped out loud and she kind of got a little bit like smaller in her seat, but that meant a lot to me. And so I might not see that clapping all the time, but I hope that I'm reaching many of our students with talking about these issues that are difficult to talk about, but maybe making them a little bit more moderate and a little bit more positive in their views on them, their understanding of them. Well, it sounds like, you know, you incorporate geology and you talk about geology in a way in which we can understand it because it's where we, our lives are intersected, you know, it's geology in our lives and it's just a combination of the two and we're in it and we're living it and it's all around us. So I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for hosting me. I really appreciate it. Dr. Fenton, it's been a pleasure. This is the See Me Now podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.